Volume One, Chapter Nine of Clayhanger by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine: The Town. James Yarlett was worthy of his nickname. He stood six feet four and a half inches in height, and his girth was proportionate. He had enormous hands and feet, large features, and a magnificent long dark brown beard. Owing to this beard, his necktie was never seen. But the most magnificent thing about him was his bass voice, acknowledged to be the finest bass in the town, and one of the finest even in Hanbridge, where in his earlier prime James had lived as a news comp on the Staffordshire Signal. He was now a jobbing comp in Bursley, because Bursley was his native town, and because he preferred jobbing. He made the fourth and heaviest member of the celebrated Bursley male glee party, the other three being Arthur Smallrice, an old man with a striking falsetto voice, Abraham Harracles, and Jos Ranpick. These men were accustomed to fame, and Big James was the king of them, though the mildest. They sang at dinners, free and easies, concerts, and Martin Mass tea meetings. They sang for the glory, and when there was no demand for their services, they sang to themselves for the sake of singing. Each of them was a star in some church or chapel choir, and, except Arthur Smallrice, they all shared a certain elasticity of religious opinion. Big James, for example, had varied in ten years from Wesleyan through Old Church to Roman Catholic up at Bleakridge. It all depended on niceties in the treatment accorded to him and on the choice of anthems. Moreover, he liked a change. He was what his superiors called a very superior man. Owing to the more careful enunciation required in singing, he had lost a great deal of the five towns accent, and one cannot be a compositor for a quarter of a century without insensibly acquiring an education and a store of knowledge far excelling the ordinary. His manner was gentle, and perhaps somewhat pompous, as is common with very big men. But you could never be sure whether an extremely subdued humour did not underlie his pomposity. He was a bachelor, aged forty-five, and lived quietly with a married sister at the bottom of Woodison Bank, near the national schools. The wonder was that with all his advantages he had not more deeply impressed himself upon Bursley as an individuality, and not merely as a voice but he seemed never to seek to do so. He was without ambition, and though curiously careful sometimes about preserving his own dignity and beyond question sensitive by temperament, he showed marked respect and even humility to the worldly successful. Despite his bigness and simplicity, there was something small about him which came out in odd trifling details. Thus it was characteristic of Big James to ask Edwin to be waiting for him at the back gates in Woodison Bank, when he might just as easily have met him at the side door by the closed shop in Wedgwood Street. Edwin, who from mere pride had said nothing to his sisters about the impending visit to the dragon, was a little surprised and dashed to see Big James in broadcloth and a high hat, for he had not dreamed of changing his own everyday suit, nor had it occurred to him that the dragon was a temple of ceremoniousness. Big James looked enormous. The wide lapel of his shining frock-coat was buttoned high up under his beard, 
and curved downwards for a distance of considerably more than a yard to his knees it was a heroic frock-coat the sleeves were wide but narrowing at the wrists and the white wristbands were very tight the trousers fell in ample folds on the uppers of the gigantic boots big james had a way of sticking out his chest and throwing his head back which would have projected the tip of his beard ten inches forth from his body had the beard been stiff but the soft silkiness of the beard frustrated this spectacular phenomenon which would have been very interesting to witness part two the pair stepped across trafalgar road together edwin though he tried to be sedate nothing but a frisking morsel by the side of the vast monument compared with the architectural grandeur of mr varlet his thin supple free-moving limbs had an almost pathetic appearance of ephemeral fragility big james directed himself to the archway leading to the dragon stables and there he saw an ostler or odd man edwin feeling the imminence of an ordeal surreptitiously explored a pocket to be sure that the proof of the wedding card was safely there the ostler raised his reddish eyebrows to big james big james jerked his head to one side indicating apparently the entire dragon and simultaneously conveying a query the ostler paused immobile an instant and then shook his insignificant turnip pate big james turned away no word had been spoken nevertheless the men had exchanged a dialogue which might be thus put into words i wasn't thinking to see you so soon from the ostler then nobody of any importance has yet gone into the assembly room from big james nobody worth speaking of and won't for a while from the other then i'll take a turn from big james the latter now looked down at edwin and addressed him in words seemingly we're too soon mr edwin what do you say to a turn around the town playground way i doubted we should be too soon edwin showed alacrity as a schoolboy it had been definitely forbidden to him to go out at night and unless sent on a special and hurried errand he had scarcely seen the physiognomy of the streets after eight o'clock he had never seen the playground in the evening and this evening the town did not seem like the same town it had become a new and mysterious town of adventure and yet edwin was not fifty yards away from his own bedroom they ascended duck bank together edwin proud to be with a celebrity of the calibre of big james and big james calmly satisfied to show himself thus formally with his master's son it appeared almost incredible that those two immortals so diverse had issued from the womb practically alike that a few brief years on the earth had given big james such a tremendous physical advantage several hours daily submission to the exact regularities of lines of type and to the unvarying demands of minutely adjusted machines in motion had stamped big james body and mind with the delicate and quasi finicking preciseness which characterizes all compositors and printers and the continual monotonous performance of similar tasks that employed his faculties while never absorbing or straining them had soothed and dulled the fever of life in him to a beneficent calm a calm refined and beautified by the pleasurable exercise of song big james had seldom known a violent emotion he had craved nothing sought for nothing and lost nothing 
edwin like big james in progress from everlasting to everlasting was all inchoate unformed undisciplined and burning with capricious fires all expectant eager reluctant tingling timid innocently and wistfully audacious by taking the boy's hand big james might have poetically symbolised their relation part three are you going to sing tonight at the dragon mr yarlett asked edwin he lengthened his step to big james controlled his ardent body and tried to remember that he was a man with a man i am young sir said big james there is a party of us is it the male glee party edwin pursued yes mr edwin then mr smallrice will be there he will mr edwin why can mr smallrice sing such high notes big james slowly shook his head as edwin looked up at him i tell you what it is young sir it's a gift that's what it is same as i can sing low but mr smallrice is very old isn't he there's a parrot in a cage over at the duck there as is eighty-five years old and that's proved by record kept young sir no protested edwin's incredulity politely by record kept said big james do you often sing at the dragon mr yarlett time was said big james when some of us used to sing there every night sundays excepted and concerts and what not excepted i for hours and hours every night and still do sometimes after your work after our work i and often till dawn in summer one o'clock two o'clock half past two o'clock every night but now they say that this new licensing act will close every public house in this town at eleven o'clock and a straight up eleven at that but what do you do it for what do we do it for we do it to pass the time and the glass young sir not as i should like you to think as i ever drank mr edwin one quart of ale i take every night and have ever done no more no less but edwin's rapid breaking voice interrupted eagerly the deep majestic tones aren't you tired the next day i should be never said big james i get up from my bed as fresh as a daisy at six sharp and i've known the nights when my bed ne'er saw me you must be strong mr yarlett my word edwin exclaimed these revelations of the habits and prowess of big james astounded him he had never suspected that such things went on in the town i'm middling i suppose it's a free and easy at the dragon to-night mr yarlett in a manner of speaking said big james i wish i could stay for it and why not big james suggested and looked down at edwin with half-humorous incertitude edwin shrugged his shoulders superiorly indicating by instinct in spite of himself that possibly big james was trespassing over the social line that divided them and yet big james father would have condescended to edwin's grandfather only edwin now belonged to the employing class whilst big james belonged to the employed already edwin whose father had been thrashed by workmen whom a compositor would hesitate to call skilled already edwin had the mien natural to a ruler and big james with dignified deference would submit unresentingly to his attitude it was the subtlest thing it was not that edwin obscurely objected to the suggestion of his being present at the free and easy 
it was that he objected but nicely and with good nature to any assumption of big james's right to influence him towards an act that his father would not approve instead of saying why not big james ought to have said nobody but you can decide that as your father's away james ought to have been strictly impartial part four well said big james when they arrived at the playground which lay north of the covered meat market or shambles it looks as if they haven't been able to make a start yet at the blood tub his tone was marked by a calm grand disdain as of one entertainer talking about another the blood tub otherwise known as snags was the centre of nocturnal pleasure in bursley it stood almost on the very spot where the jawbone of a whale had once lain as a supreme natural curiosity it represented the softened manners which had developed out of the old medievalism of the century it had supplanted the bear pit and the cockpit it corresponded somewhat with the ideals symbolised by the new town hall in the tiny odorous beer-houses of all the undulating twisting reddish streets that surrounded the contiguous open spaces of duck bank the playground the market-place and st luke's square the folk no longer discussed eagerly what chance on sunday morning the municipal bear would have against five dogs they had progressed as far as a free library boxing-gloves rabbit-coursing and the blood-tub this last was a theatre with wooden sides and a canvas roof and it would hold quite a crowd of people in front of it was a platform and an orchestra lighted by oil flares that as big james and edwin approached were gaining strength in the twilight leaning against the platform was a blackboard on which was chalked the announcement of two plays the forty thieves author unstated and crookshanks the bottle the orchestra after terrific concussions fell silent and then a troop of players in costume cramped on the narrow trestle boards performed a sample scene from the forty thieves just to give the crowd in front an idea of the wonders of this powerful work and four thieves passed and repassed behind the screen hiding the doors and reappeared nine times as four fresh thieves until the tale of forty was complete and then old hammerad the beloved clown who played the drum and whose wife kept a barber shop in buck row and shaved for a penny left his drum and did two minutes stiff clowning and then the orchestra burst forth again and the brazen voice of old snags in his moleskin waistcoat easily rode the storm adjuring the folk to walk up and walk up which some of the folk did do and lastly the band played god save the queen and the players followed by old snags processionally entered the booth i lay they come out again said big james with grim blandness why asked edwin he was absolutely new to the scene i lay they haven't got twenty couple inside said big james and in less than a minute the troop did indeed emerge and old snags postulated with a dilatory public respectfully but firmly it had been a queer year for mr snaggs rain had ruined the wakes rain had ruined everything rain had nearly ruined him july was obviously not a month in which a self-respecting theatre ought to be open but mr snaggs had got to the point of catching at straws 
he stated that in order to prove his absolute bona fides the troupe would now give a scene from that world-renowned and unique drama the bottle after which the performance really would commence since he could not as a gentleman keep his kind patrons within waiting any longer his habit which emphasised itself as he grew older was to treat the staring crowd in front of his booth like a family of nephews and nieces the device was quite useless for the public's stolidity was impregnable it touched the heroic no more granitic and crass stolidity could have been discovered in england the crowd stood it exercised no other function of existence it just stood and there it would stand under convinced that the gratis part of the spectacle was positively at an end part five with a ceremonious gesture signifying that he assumed the young sir's consent big james turned away he had displayed to edwin the poverty and the futility of the blood-tub edwin would perhaps have liked to stay the scenes enacted on the outer platform were certainly tinged with the ridiculous but they were the first histrionics that he had ever witnessed and he could not help thinking hoping in spite of his common sense that within the booth all was different miraculously transformed into the grand and the impressive left to himself he would surely have preferred an evening at the blood tub to a business interview with mr enoch peake at the dragon but naturally he had to scorn the blood-tub with a scorn equal to the massive and silent scorn of big james and on the whole he considered that he was behaving as a man with another man rather well he sought by depreciatory remarks to keep the conversation at its proper adult level big james led him through the market-place where a few vegetable tripe and gingerbread stalls relics of the day's market were still attracting customers in the twilight these slatternly and picturesque groups beneath their flickering yellow flares were encamped at the gigantic foot of the town hall porch as at the foot of a precipice the monstrous black walls of the town hall rose and were merged in gloom and the spire of the town hall on whose summit stood a gold angel holding a gold crown rose right into the heavens and was there lost it was marvellous that this town by adding stone to stone had upreared this monument which in expressing the secret nobility of its ideals dwarfed the town on every side of it the beer-houses full of a dulled savage ecstasy of life gleamed brighter than the shops big james led edwin down through the mysteries of the cockyard and up along bug's gutter and so back to the dragon End of chapter 9, volume 1